0: It is really good uh, to be here this morning. It is such a privilege uh, for me to have this opportunity to, to be up front here to challenge you, to share some things with you from my heart. And I just want to start out by, by just by saying thank you. Um, we are coming to the end of uh, this evening, of the end of, our, of the missions conference here. And it has been, from a missionary's perspective at least, it's been really awesome. And it's been really special for Teresa and I because we feel like we get to, to bring some of our other uh, missionary friends around so they can experience the awesomeness, the, 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 the graciousness of this church uh, for a week. Uh, we, get, we get to see it all year round, but they get to see it, you know, for this week. Half a minute at times, is was hard to share. Um, I remember when, I, when we were at the, um, the Seniors. I, they don't call it the Seniors, but what's the group called? Prime no, not Primetimers. Is the, it the they called the Seniors? It's like... Post-Prime Time? Is that what you call it? No. When we were at the, uh, I'll call it the seniors group, the seniors group, and I I found myself kind of jealous. I'm like, I don't think I want to share this group with the rest of these missionaries, but it was good. It was good to share, but this uh, this week for us has been awesome. Uh, We are always blown away, continually blown away by the graciousness of this church. And you, you go to such lengths to make us feel loved and appreciated, and you go to such great lengths to make our children feel loved and appreciated. And so on behalf of my family and the rest of the missionaries here, we just wanna say thank you, thank you so much. And, uh, and thank you again for the opportunity to be, able to be up here this morning to share some things. You know Missions Conference is a uh, opportunity, I think, to recalibrate our minds towards the mission. That's why I think it's good to have these types of conferences once in a while. Now, we may not all be called to be missionaries, but we are all called to participate in the mission. We're not all missionaries, but we are all on mission. And I believe this very strongly, that when each of us, when we make that decision, when we accept the invitation from Jesus to place our trust in Him as our Savior, at the very same moment, knowingly or unknowingly, we are accepting the invitation to enter into His mission. And His mission, in His own words out of Luke 19, is this, to seek and to save the lost and he reiterated and handed that mission down as a mandate to his followers in Luke or in Matthew 28 when he said to his disciples and has been passed down to us go go and make disciples of all nations you and i as followers of jesus all of us have been called into the mission it does not matter if you have the title missionary or mechanic or mom All of us who claim Jesus as our Lord and Savior have been called into the mission to participate, some locally, some globally, some here, some over there, and some way over there, but we've all been called to participate in the mission, and so I think that's why it's important in these moments, these missions moments like this, to recalibrate our mind to that, to wake up to that, to be reminded, to be rebuked. And not just the church, but missionaries. We all need to be reminded of this and rebuked. And, you know, um, I, I count it a tremendous privilege to speak, and I always look forward to these moments. But uh, the preparation for this message has been horrible for me. It's terrible. Um, when I was on staff here, and I came on staff in 1999, and... and, and Pat and I was kind of formed a staff here, and we were all pretty young guys. Um, and he was kind of in charge of trying to herd these cats and, and get them going in the right direction. And, and there were moments when he had to have some tough conversations with us individually. And we would get, amongst the, uh, the staff, we'd always talk like this. We'd say, you know, we'd get a, uh, a memo from the secretary, said, hey, uh, Pastor would like to meet with you after the meeting. You're like, oh, no. You know, and we'd always kind of laugh amongst us and say, oh, oh, Lucas is going to the woodshed, you know. It wasn't just me, but it was a lot of the times it was me. Um, <laughs> and so we'd have these, you know, going back behind the woodshed moments. You know, you know what that means, you know, when, when that, that phrase, your dad would, would go tan your hide, so to speak, behind the woodshed. I guess it's like, we don't we have a woodshed in my house, but we know what you mean, right? It's like going back there and having those difficult uh, correcting moments. When your loving father would maybe slap your, your hiney. Anyway, um, this whole time that I've been working on this message and studying for this message, and it has been just a, a giant behind the woodshed moment uh, with me and the Lord. And, and there were moments, literal moments, where I cried out to God, I do, Lord, I don't want to preach this. I don't want to preach this. I don't, I don't want to walk this walk. And so what I want to do to you today, not so much preach at you per se, but I just want to invite you in to my, my woodshed moment with God so you can observe and you can learn from, uh, from the licking <laughs> that I've been getting from the Lord. So let's do that. Um, as I've already said, uh, we are all, all of us, are on mission. All of us who know Christ is our Savior, we are on the mission of seeking and saving the lost. And the gospel is central to that mission. The gospel message is central to our mission of seeking and saving the lost. And oftentimes when we talk about the gospel, we talk about the theological. Aspects or realities of the gospel. We spend a lot of time, and that's important time. We can't can't sidestep or downplay the theological realities, the nuts and bolts of the gospel, what it means, how we understand it, the simple fact that we are sinners, that we do things that God says are wrong. That's what it means to be a sinner. Now, we are not sinners simply by our actions, but the scripture teaches us that we are sinners by our very nature. That's what we do naturally. If you struggle with that thought, just realize that if you have children, you, you know that you did not have to teach your children to sin, right? You did not have to teach your children to lip off. They just did that naturally. They didn't, you didn't have to teach them to disobey, right? It's, why is that? It's because in our very nature, we have this rebellious, spirit, this propensity and drive to do what God says is wrong. And because of that, that very, those actions, that very nature of sin, we are separated from God and heading towards judgment. And Jesus taught and warned over and over again about that judgment, that ending place that he called hell. And the very fact that that is true Emphasizes the fact that we need to be rescued from that. We need our guilt removed. We need a rescuer. And God provided one. That's the message of the gospel. God sent his son Jesus to pay our penalty for our sins, to die in our place, to suffer for us. There's a passage of scripture. I just want to look at just real briefly to kind of talks about this a little bit. This isn't where, I'm, where we're focusing today, but I think it's important to, to touch on this, the, the, the theological realities of the gospel. But in Romans chapter 3, verse 22 through 25, and, and I love this translation. It's a little more dynamic, but I love how it handles this passage. Verse 22 says this. It's, this is just oozing with theology. We are made, he says, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, it's so clear, it's so clear. We, we are wrong before God, but we are made right with God when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes. These are huge words. I mean, we just meditate on this all day, I think. No matter who you are, verse 23, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, Freely makes us right in His sight. How He did this through Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, when He freed us from the penalty for our for our sins. Well, how did do, how did He do that? Verse twenty five: For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for our sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed His life, shedding. His blood. That passage is so rich in theology, the theological nuts and bolts of the gospel. And I have no doubt that there are some of us here today. I have no doubt that there are some of us here today. That's what you need to hear. You're here today, and maybe you, you already sense that tension in your gut, that, that things just aren't right between you and God. You feel the, the, the Spirit of God convicting you of your sin, And what you need to hear this morning is that God loves you and he provided a way for you to be rescued and forgiven. This message that is central to our mission, mission, the gospel, that Jesus died for your sins. And if you bow your knee to him, if you believe in him as your savior, trusting in Christ, repenting of your sins, he will freely forgive you. You will be redeemed, restored, rescued made right with God. If that's where you are this morning, you don't need to go any farther in this message than just that. You need to sit and soak there. I just want to challenge you, if that's you this morning, don't let this day go by. Don't let one more day go by. You don't make yourself right with God through believing in Christ. But we can't just focus on the theological realities. Although they are so important, we can't just focus on the theological realities of the gospel because there's other realities, other aspects of the gospel that are equally important. Oftentimes when we talk about the gospel, we'll land on and think and meditate on the practical realities of the gospel. This is also really important. The gospel cannot simply change our eternal destiny, but it must change our very lives, The gospel isn't something that we simply believe in, but it must define us. The gospel, help us unpack that a little bit, the gospel declares that I am loved by God unconditionally and completely, and that must change me daily, how I interact with myself and the world around me. God cannot, think about this, God cannot love you more than he does in this moment, God loves you 100 percent right now. If you, woke, if you woke up this morning and had wonderful devotions, it's a great time in the word, worshiping the Lord. Or if you woke up and didn't do any of that, God loves you, 100 percent. God loves the faithful spouse, and He loves the adulterer. I know that's hard for us to get our mind around sometime, but God. God's character, he does not love 95%. He, he, he loves 100%. And he loves you 100% irregardless of your actions in this moment. Now, I'm not saying that our, our sin does not have ramifications and, and that there's not tension between us and the Lord, that he does not at times become angry with his children. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that he loves you. To illustrate that, I, I think... It, a great way to get our minds around that is, is to think about a father and his children. A dad might have, might have two boys and maybe one of those boys is a rascal, right? Disobedient. He's untrustworthy. He lies. He, he breaks things. He steals things. He's always trying to get away. He's always trying to, to, to get away with things. And then he has a, another son who's Honest and trustworthy and faithful, and, and uh, he obeys. Now, the son who obeys and is trustworthy, he's going to get more privileges, right? He's going to get the, the keys to the car to go out with his friends. He's going to get the opportunity to stay home alone. The other son, he's not going to get those opportunities and privileges, right? He's not going to stay home alone. He's not trustworthy. He's not going to get the keys to the car because he's not trustworthy. And maybe the dad enjoys spending more time with the obedient son, right? <laughs> but, but the father loves both his children equally. Our father in, in heaven is the perfect example of that. He loves his children regardless of what they do. Now, he, he might get irritated. He might have to give one uh, a pat the behind once in a while. he might have to punish and ground and take away their allowance, and, but that doesn't mean he doesn't love them. We understand that. That love that the gospel declares that God has for us needs to change us. The way we view ourselves, if you get those voices in your head, I know I do, that condemn you, that say, oh, you're not loved, you're not good, good enough, you're, you're worthless. If you get those voices in your head, you have to realize that is not from God. Scripture tells us that, tells us that. Romans 8-1 tells us there is no, con- no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that voice of condemnation in your head, that does not come from God. It's not truth. Don't believe it. The gospel must also change the way that we view others. When I bump into somebody, I have to realize that God loves that person. Christ died for that person. And so I need to respond differently. I'm not allowed to hate people that God loves. I'm not allowed to mistreat and downplay people that Christ died for. I love, I must love and serve the very same people that God loves and serves through Christ. Right? Those are some, just two super important applications of the gospel. But there's others. For example, not only does God love me completely, but he has forgiven me completely. He sees me as holy. And that forgiveness is based on grace. I can't earn it. I can't buy it. I can't be religious enough to to earn it. And I don't deserve it. But it's given to me when I believe in Jesus. That is what grace means. And that has to change the way that we see and interact with the world around us. If I'm forgiven for my sins freely through grace, how do I respond when someone seeks my forgiveness? Do I forgive freely? Or do I make people earn it? Do I make my children earn it? Do I I withhold it? Am I quick to anger and slow to forgive? The truth of the gospel must change us. These are powerful and important practical realities of the gospel. And we need to be reminded of these, and we need to meditate on these. They need to change our lives daily. But the theological and practical re- realities of the gospel, although they are crucial, that's not what, where I want to focus on today, because I believe that there are other realities, another set of realities, that are just as important, especially when talking about our responsibility as followers of Jesus in the mission. And this is where God has been challenging me. This, this is. This has been the topic of my woodshed moment with the Lord, ongoing moment with the Lord. And so I just want to invite you back into that woodshed, or behind that woodshed, that you can listen in and see what's been going on. The passage of Scripture that God brought to my mind and has been working me over with is in Romans chapter 9. And so you can open up your Bibles if you have them. We'll put the the verses up here on the screen here in a second. But in Romans chapter 9, We're just going to look at the first three verses. And the first verse says this. It's really interesting. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. Not not that I'm just speaking the truth. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. Then he, he doubles down. I'm not lying. So not only am I speaking the truth in Christ, he says, look, I'm not lying. Then he goes on. My conscience bears me witness in the Spirit. Okay, Paul, we get it. You are speaking the truth. But he says these things because he's about to lay out an idea that's going to be hard to believe. You're you're going to think in your mind, oh, Paul's exaggerating here. There's no way he's being honest. But he's making it very clear here in verse 1. He's being truthful. He's not exaggerating. Okay, Paul, so what is this hard to believe, hard to swallow truth that you you want to get across to us? Verse 2, he says, here it is. He says that I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. This isn't a a temporary anguish. It's not a, a, a small sorrow. It's unceasing and great. It's not an anguish that will heal in time. It's a gnawing pain deep in his heart. Okay, so Paul, what's causing this great unceasing sorrow in your heart? Verse 3, he says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ. He said, I wish that I could go to hell. Why? For the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul's great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart was caused by the reality that his Jewish brothers were dying and going to hell. These are the emotional realities of the gospel. There is pain, emotional pain in the gospel. People that we know, people that we love, will die never believing in Jesus. They will die under the wrath of God. And there's no way to sugarcoat that. That hurts. It's horrible. It's too much to bear. That's why Paul uses the language that he does. He says, look, this is a great sorrow and an unceasing anguish in my heart. So how do we respond to that? How do we respond to that to the emotional reality of the gospel. Well, I can tell you how how I've responded to that over the years. I've ignored it. I've, I've leaned into the busyness of my life to try to callous my heart to those realities. It's a coping mechanism. On the mission field, Oftentimes, I feel like I am just working my tail off just to survive, doing this, doing that, running this errand, getting this thing done, and at times, I don't even think about the mission that's going on around me. You might be able able to relate to that. I know many of you are just crazy busy, and our culture here in the United States thrives on busyness. We say to ourselves, you know, I don't have time to think about the people around me who are spiritually dead and coasting towards hell. I have an education to get, a business to run, a family to take care of, a church to run. And the busyness distracts us from the pain, the emotional realities of the gospel. And it just distracts us from feeling that pain. And so if you're like me, you'll they try to callous your heart by ignoring it, by leaning into the busyness of life. Another way that I have tried to deal with these emotional realities of the gospel, the pain and the heart anguish that the gospel brings about, is I have tried to lean into the sovereignty of God. Now Spurgeon said that the sovereignty of God is the pillow that we rest our head on. And I love that, that quote from Spurgeon. Because knowing that that God is ultimately in control, that my actions or lack of action will not thwart God's overarching plan, knowing that he's good, that he'll walk with me through all things, that he'll make all those things good for me, knowing that literally allows me to sleep at night. Okay, Lord, you're in control. It is literally the pillow I rest my head on the sovereignty of God. And it is the rock that we can anchor our lives to, to weather the storms that come our way. But there is a danger. There is a temptation to go too far. Oftentimes I'll think, well, you know, God will save that person with or without me. So it doesn't really matter if I share the gospel at this moment so we lean too, or I lean too far into this theology. And that can callous my heart to the emotional pain of the gospel on theological grounds. And that is really dangerous because we can justify our calloused hearts through scripture and, the disgu- and disguise our disobedience as piety. We must balance our understanding of the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty of God is the pillow we rest our head on, but it cannot be the couch that we sit on like a sloth eating Doritos as our life passes away. It's a pillow. It's not a couch. Our theology must give us rest and spur us on to greater investment in the mission God's sovereignty does does teach us that he will save people without us. Excuse me. It does not teach us that he will save people without us. It teaches us that God is at work drawing people to himself. He is in control. And that if I share the gospel, people will get saved. If God wasn't sovereign and at work in people's hearts, no one would trust in Christ. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God teaches me that if I do share Christ, people will get saved. That's a balanced reality, the view of God's sovereignty. It can give us rest, but it must also spur us on. Now, These are some of the ways that I've dealt with the pain of the gospel in my life. I've ignored it by being busy. I've ignored it through bad application of good theology. How did Paul deal with it? How did he deal with the pain of the gospel? Then in Romans 9, 9 it shows us, he leaned in and embraced it. Paul was broken over the spiritual condition of the lost. The gospel brings great joy, unending joy, but along with it, great sorrow, as we think of those around us. I think that sorrow was one of the things that pushed him to open his mouth and share Christ. The gospel demands that we look at people differently. Every person that I come into contact with is loved by God. Every person I come into contact with is someone that Jesus died for. Every person I come into contact with, if they do not hear that message and trust in Jesus, they will die under the wrath of God. And I wish I could stand before this morning and say that my heart is always in anguish over the lost, but it, it's not. There's been times. I remember a time a while back when I was sitting on the roof of, of my building where I used to live. And I was just was worshiping, I was praising, I was, I was praying and, and just having a, a, an awesome time with the Lord. It was that moment where, where you, just, you just kind of lost and just Worshipping, and you feel so close to the Lord. I don't know if you've, you've had those moments. I hope you do. But it was night. It was, it was early morning. It was still dark. No lights were on. I, and I just, I opened my eyes and I started to look around me. And I saw all these apartment buildings and all these windows. And there were some lights on some of the windows. And, and there were just thousands upon thousands of people all around me. And I knew that the vast majority of them, probably ninety-five percent of them, did not know Jesus as their Savior, and in their current condition were heading towards judgment. I just stood up, and I just started praying for those people around me. I didn't know who they were. I, just, I began to weep, thinking about all these people around me who do not know Jesus. So in that moment when, when I was feeling very close to the Lord, as if my heart was beating with His, was the moment that, that my heart began to have anguish for the lost. And that makes sense. Because if you look at Paul, what what does Paul say? He says, I wish that I could die and go to hell in place of my Jewish brothers. I wish I could suffer in their place. Who does that sound like? Jesus. Paul, in this ludicrous expression of the pain in his heart, he's not being crazy. Paul is being Christ-like. So it would make sense that in my own experience that the moments that I draw closest to the Lord are the moments that my heart begins to ache the most for the lost. Scripture tells us that we have the mind of Christ. But do we have the heart of Christ? So just as I close down here, I just got a few few moments. I just want to ask you a question. How is your heart this morning? Is it aching for the lost? Or have you allowed your heart to be calloused? If your heart is calloused this morning, let me share with you two things that the Lord has kind of been impressing on me that I need to do and keep doing in my own life. The first one is this. He's made it very clear that I need to repent. Having a calloused heart towards the lost is wrong. And if you've allowed your heart to have calluses on it towards the lost, and we need to rip those off through repentance. The second thing the Lord has been impressing on me is that I need to pray differently. I need to pray asking the Lord to give me a heart that continually breaks and weeps for the lost. I have to pray that because I don't like to hurt. I don't, I don't know about you. I don't like to hurt. But I know That I am called by God to be broken for the lost. So I need to ask him to help me. Give me the heart of Christ. That it will will break and weep for the lost. And then a natural outflow of that is to begin to pray that God gives open doors and opportunities to share the gospel with the very people that you're weeping over. When it's all said and done... All of us here have people close to us who don't know Jesus. And I just want to invite you this morning the same invitation that God has been giving me these past weeks. That's the invitation to to weep for those who do not know Christ. To embrace the pain and to allow it to move us out of our complacency. Let's pray. Father, Father, I just want to publicly, I, I've been talking to you about this privately, but I just want to publicly um, say that to you, Lord, that I repent of my callousness of my heart, my heart towards the lost. And, Lord, there are no excuses. I can't allow the busyness, even the necessary business, uh, business of life to be an excuse. And I, I can't use your own scriptures against you. You <laughs> Make some excuse that biblically I don't need to be broken for the lost. So Lord, I just publicly repent. Lord, my heart has every reason to break. And I'm sorry that, that I run from that and I insulate myself from that pain Jesus was a man of sorrows and we're called to to walk in his steps to enter into his mission we can't get around it there is pain so Lord I just pray that you would raise us up to be people willing to carry that mantle of sorrow for those around us who do not know Christ. May we pray for them. May we love them. May we show them Christ. May we sit down and talk with them and tell them how they can be made right with God. So Father, I pray, help our hearts to weep for the lost. Lord, I pray this your Son's name. Amen.